Did you know 90% of top performers have a high emotional intelligence and a higher than average annual income? As one of the most highly valued skill sets, emotional intelligence or EI is what distinguishes outstanding leaders. Deepen your EI skills today with the Daniel Goleman Emotional Intelligence course, a 12-week online course to develop your inner capacity, become a stellar leader, and build high-performance teams. Save your seat and $50 with the coupon code PODCAST. Learn more at courses.keystepmedia.com. That's courses.key stepmedia.com. Don't forget to enter coupon code PODCAST at checkout for $50 off your registration. What do you do to make other kids feel included or welcome? I play with them. What if they're really shy? I would say it's okay and I would still ask them to play. What does it feel like to be included by other kids, either at school or maybe on a sports team? It's fun. That's the only thing. It's fun. How do you think it feels to be excluded? I think it would feel sad and I would ask if I can still play. How would it feel to be excluded for something that you can't change or control? It would make me sad and it's not nice. We should be kind to each other. Send us some positive vibes. Welcome to First Person Plural, Emotional Intelligence and Beyond. I'm Daniel Goleman, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Hanuman Goleman and Elizabeth Solomon. Hey, Hanuman, Liz, hi. Hi, Dan. Hey, hey. Hi, Hanuman. Today, we're taking a look at the theory of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, which we'll refer to as DEIB or DEEB, by speaking to Associate Professor of Management at Columbia Business School, Modupi Akinola, who sat down with me to share her research. And that's just the beginning of an incredible lineup on this theme. Next week, we'll continue the conversation by featuring the folks from the Great Place to Work Institute to dig deeper into how the corporate world can create spaces and cultures where everyone, regardless of identity, can belong and thrive at work. And then we'll close out our season with an incredible first-person perspective from Brittna Bennett, who shares a piece she wrote about her experience as a Black woman in corporate America. Before we kick off this conversation around diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, I want to give all of us an opportunity to talk a little bit about our core identities and to share with our listeners how we identify in terms of race, gender, family structure, anything that feels important to mention? I identify as a white male, straight white male. Um, I'm a father and uh, a husband. I would have to say the same, being Hanuman's father. Uh, So I identify also as a father, grandfather, husband, uh, white. But, you know, my ancestors in, in Europe, uh, didn't have it so easy. Even though they looked white, they were seen as other. And uh, for me, the conversation around race is a difficult one and one I want to have. Thank you for that, Dan. 
I identify as white also, uh, female. Um, I identify as queer, which is an identity that um, came later in life. Um, I identify as a mother. My daughter is biracial and my partner has three kids, um, all adopted from different ethnic identities. So the topic of diversity and equity and inclusion and how we talk about the color of our skin or our gender, um, that's been a big topic of conversation in my household. I'm curious, since each of us here identify as white, what is your comfort level talking or engaging around the topic of race? And I'm curious for both of you, is there anything that you've done or that you are doing to work on continuing your learning around these topics? You know, I realize that uh, the people in my uh, circle of contacts are basically white. So it's hard to have this conversation with someone who's from a, a different background or different ethnic group or race, uh, but I do want to learn about it. And I've been doing a lot of reading on it, uh, but that's not the same. It was a, a delight for me to talk to Madupi because she embodies the topic. Yeah, the truth about racism is difficult. So there's this natural need for psychological safety. And the safer we feel, the easier it is to be open to difficult things. But the thing is, that the discomfort with the really crappy truth about racism and sexism, heterosexism, all these things, and my place in those hierarchies as a white man, me being quiet just keeps the same systems of inequities and advantages in the shadows. It keeps them in place. There was this moment when I was talking with a friend of mine She's a black woman, and we were talking about me wanting comfort to have difficult conversations, specifically around race. And she made the point that black people don't get to decide when they experience racism, and it always feels bad. It's the privilege that I have as a white person that lets me think about a cozy way that I want to have a difficult conversation about race. When we let fear keep us from difficult conversations, Difficult things don't get addressed. One antidote to that fear is a growth mindset, knowing that we have a lot to learn and that getting it wrong is what learning can feel like. When we address our part of a system, that system has been changed. I'm really looking forward to hearing Dan's conversation with Madupe Akinola on this topic. Let's jump in. Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Daniel Goleman, and my guest today is uh, a wonderful person, Madupe Akinola. We've talked before about her work on stress. She teaches at Columbia Business School. She has a podcast on uh, the, the TED uh, Business Podcast, and she tries to take TED Talks and convert them into how can we use this information in our lives? I'm so intrigued about your work on diversity and inclusion. You have an unusual background, as I recall. Your parents are from Senegal, is that right? Um, they are from 
you got West Africa right, but it's Nigeria, Togo, and Ghana. So you're then first generation American. Yes. But you also, of course, live the issues of diversity and inclusion in your everyday life. I know you've done some really intriguing research along these lines, too. So just for openers, when, when you talk to business people uh, about uh, diversity and inclusion or anyone in organizations, what are the points you try to make, you try to get across? I try to highlight that, A, there is beauty and diversity. This is what makes our world what it is, having so many different people from so many different backgrounds who can get together to solve unique problems that on our own we could not solve. But with diversity, when people are so different and you bring them all together, it's potentially easy for people to maybe not get along or to not voice their opinions because you're around people who are different. So it's really on the leader to bring out the best in diversity. Diversity doesn't result in great outcomes just by bringing a bunch of different people together. When the leader um, presents shared goals or treats everyone equally, um, where everyone feels their voice is heard and valued, those are some of the conditions under which we get the best out of diversity. So that is the first thing I say. But it's also important to remember that this is hard. It's hard when you meet people who are different, who are novel, who are whatever to you. And so with diversity comes some uncertainty. You know, we know that one of the biggest factors of us forming personal and professional relationships with others is similarity. So then imagine meeting somebody who's different from you and you're always used to being around people who are kind of similar in some way and you get nervous. Am I going to say the wrong thing? Am I going to do something that's offensive? Am I going to be discriminatory in some way and not know it? So that's stressful. And as you know, one of the things I study is stress. With diversity comes some stress. And as a society and as individuals and organizations, we need to get better at understanding the sources of that stress, addressing that um, to allow us to have healthier and more productive relationships across difference. What are the subtle signs in a group and a team, for example, that might signal that someone is valued or not? Well, I think one of the key signals is voice. If you take up more airspace, then it suggests that people want to hear what you have to say. And so it's important to then make everyone get airtime so that they can be respected and viewed as somebody who people want to hear from. And often, if you are the numerical minority in a group for on whatever dimension, your race, your gender, you name it, you might be less likely to speak up because you feel nervous about what you have to say. You don't know how it will be received because no one looks like you. And so it becomes really important as someone who manages group processes to make sure that everyone has voice. You know, this reminds me of, uh, I, was, I was talking to Vanessa Truscat, who does work and observes teams at the University of New Hampshire. And she was saying that there are subtle signs that high status people on a team, like a leader, might give that someone is either valued or not. Uh, for example, when someone is talking, do you pay attention? Or do you, you know, look at your phone? 
Uh, do you start a side conversation? Do you decide, oh, I better take a restroom break and walk out of the room? These are all signs to everyone else that the person speaking uh, isn't someone that, that you value. And I wonder if this shows, if, if, if you've seen this or this makes sense to you as an indicator. It absolutely does. And this is funny because you just reminded me of um, some work my collaborators and I are in the process of uh, submitting for um, publication where we call it um, the loyal lieutenant as kingmaker. What does that mean? That even subtle forms of, of acknowledging somebody can dub you a leader. So we examined whether if you just consistently nod at a person when they're speaking and you're not the person speaking, you are on the team consistently nodding when a person is speaking or mimicking them in their verbal and non or in their nonverbal behavior, do others then dub that person as a leader? And we find that indeed they do, that even these subtle forms of somebody else showing deference to a leader makes others dub that person a leader, even though they aren't necessarily the leader in a group. Well, I guess they're what you would call an emergent leader. Yes. They're the person who emerges as a very influential, valued voice. That's so interesting. The, the other distinction I think it's very important to make in this realm is between inclusion, which means there's one of you, you know, we have two women on our board, we'll get to that research, versus the sense of belonging. Are you valued? Do you feel you belong? Yes, yes. Does that make sense to you? It does. And one of my favorite quotes is by a woman at Netflix who heads their diversity, Brene Myers. And she says, diversity is being invited to the party. Inclusion is being asked to dance. But I like to take it one step further and say being asked to dance and also being asked to pick the music. Because if you can choose, like, I can dance to your music. That's just, that's, yes, I'm included. But if I'm really included and really valued, then you would say, and what music do you want? What music do you like? And so that is, I think, a great metaphor for how we should think about inclusion that is aligned with what you just highlighted and noted. So I think that goes beyond simple inclusion to belonging. We value you. We want your welcome here. You are welcome. Your perspective, your opinion, your music, your taste, your style matters to us. You belong. And that is what we need to cultivate more of in our relationships, in our groups, in our teams, in our organizations. And it occurs to me that people may think that they're welcoming, but they may give nonverbal signs that suggest they're not that welcoming. Yeah. Or they welcome you on their terms. That's the thing. You're being welcomed, but in a way that forces you to assimilate to whatever they're comfortable with and whatever their the dominant way of doing things is. And we really need to understand, wow, that perspective is coming from a dominant lens. That's a really important point. I wonder if you could highlight for us the difference between, you know, you're included in the group, but you feel you have to conform versus feeling valued, welcomed, you belong, and being able to speak your unique perspective or voice. Right. You know, for some reason, this example is coming to me because I think it's really relevant for professors or those in high power positions to understand what this means. 
I was having a conversation with colleagues and we were talking about how if a student experiences something in the classroom that doesn't make them feel comfortable or whatever, they should feel comfortable coming up to the professor and saying it. But that in and of itself is applying a dominant lens to things. That assumes that every student should feel comfortable sharing their voice and perspective with a senior person. No, there are some students who are comfortable with doing that because they've done that all their lives. Other students who've been told or grew up like, hey, that's power, that's a senior position, that's a title, be careful, don't say your voice around them because you never know how it will be received. So to go back to our point, there is something about needing to understand the perspectives of those around you and how comfortable or uncomfortable some might be and feel in situations when they are the numerical minority or low power or low status and opening up channels for them to feel more comfortable speaking their voice. What would such a channel look like? This is a really important point. It would look like a professor saying at the beginning of class, I welcome any feedback from anyone. Or a leader in a business situation. Exactly. Saying, I welcome feedback. I value feedback at all levels. Please don't hesitate. It helps. And then here, adding the vulnerability. It helps me to be a better professor. You've done some interesting work on creativity and diversity in groups. And I, I wonder if you could recap that a little bit. The upside of a diverse group and the potential downside when it's not optimized. So there is um, a lot of research highlighting that, you know, yes, that groups should be and can be creative um, and that the best outcomes come from when you bring diverse groups together. But in some of my work, this is some of my work, I, I think, on um, collective hormonal profiles and groups. Okay, so let me get technical for a second on this. So there's a lot of research out there on personality characteristics and how they affect group performance and other kind of psychological profiles of group members that influence whether or not groups perform well. In this work, because I study hormones and I study stress, we wanted to look at if there are particular profiles of hormones in groups that result in groups doing well. And so what we did was we took hormone levels of group members, and we were specifically interested in testosterone. Testosterone is a hormone that's linked to dominance or the desire to make, gain and maintain status in groups. So you can think of a high testosterone person as usually being at the top of the status hierarchy, um, as someone who wants to win, as someone who might be competitive. I have a question. Is high testosterone just in guys or women too? Women too. So mean levels of testosterone differ. So women have lower testosterone levels, but you would still expect that a high testosterone woman would exhibit the same behavior as a high testosterone man. So... We wanted to see if you are wanting to win and beat a group and beat everyone else, under what conditions, conditions of homogeneity when you all look alike or conditions of diversity, would you end up performing well as a group? So here again, let me, let me just break this dial down for you. We have a theory of hormone diversity fit that is linked to testosterone and group composition. And the theory 
which we also tested in research, is that when you're high testosterone and you all look similar, so you're a homogenous team, then you will outperform other groups under those conditions. Why? Because you wanna beat everybody else and you all look the same. So you don't have to worry about um, how people in the group are viewing you. You're not worried about like, is this person thinking of me differently? No, we all look the same. We, we're similar. We know, as I mentioned already, that we tend to, to enjoy being around people with whom we're similar. So in that situation, you can be so focused on outcompeting other people that you do well in terms of outcompeting other groups. On the other hand, there is research that suggests that when you're low in testosterone, you're more collaborative and cooperative. And so we reason that in a situation when you're low in testosterone, but diverse, that's when diverse groups perform well, because you are all different, but you have a tendency towards wanting to cooperate with each other, wanting to learn more about each other. And so we ended up finding that the groups that performed the best in this kind of group-related task were those who were high in testosterone, but low in diversity, or groups that were low in testosterone, but high in diversity, aligned with this idea that you can be more inwardly, collectively focused when you're low in testosterone, which then gives you the kind of um, the catalyst for the group, getting the most out of the diversity in the group. And then when you're high in testosterone and all look the same, you can just not think about internal group dynamics, but instead be like, hey, we want to beat that group and we want to beat that group. What else can we do to beat these other groups? So that is our theory of hormone diversity fit that has been borne out in um, some group related research that we conducted and hoping to conduct a lot more on this phenomenon. You know, this reminds me of some research on leadership styles and one style in particular, which is called the pace setter. Uh, this and the pace setter is someone who I, I bet is high testosterone. It's someone who, who's a, a high achiever as an individual contributor. They were high achieving. That's why they became the leader of whatever group. And they, they lead in the same way they were used to accomplishing personally. They have very high internal standards, but they only focus on what they've done wrong. And as a leader, they only focus on what other people do wrong. Oh, interesting. Uh, and there was an HBR article on this called Leadership Run Amok, where they talked about leaders, and I bet they're high testosterone types, who drive their people, you know, to burnout, but get results in the short term. Long term, they lose people. People don't want to work for someone like that. And, you know, I think even similar people don't want to work for someone like that. Now, the low testosterone, that's interesting, because would a low testosterone person become a group leader in the organizations as we know them today? And also, I have a question, is oxytocin related to this or you didn't look at it? So I didn't look at oxytocin, which I would love to at some point that that's kind of trust hormone, because you can imagine that there's some interactions there in terms of if you are, um, if people trust each other. That is one of the key mechanisms through which we would expect these positive outcomes to, to um, occur, but didn't test that. And also in this study, we didn't get to look into mechanism more uh, deeply, but trust is one of the key mechanisms and um, everyone being able to speak their voice, which we've already talked a bit about. Um, to your question about 
who we might expect to be leaders in organizations. I'm happy you brought that up because I don't want anyone to listen to this and think, oh, if I'm high testosterone, that means I'm a bad leader. If I'm low testosterone, that means I'm a good, what you name it. No, I think of all of this similar to the way in which we think of our personality data that we get. You know, an extrovert it can be a leader and an introvert can be a leader. They just might lead in different ways. And what I do when I collect hormones, especially from senior leaders and senior executive programs I'm a part of, is I tell them, here's what your dominant tendency is. You're going to want to compete. You're going to want to win. You're going to want to beat other people. So you're going to need to engage in behaviors that counter that when you need those behaviors to be countered. So think about what context you're in. And if this is a context where all my people need to be primed to win, then put that, you know, on overdrive. But if it's a context where you want your people to focus on collaboration, then you need to do more to groom that type of behavior. So we can all modulate regardless of what our personality, our hormones, our dominant tendencies, but it's on us to know what those are and then to adjust and adapt. Leaders need self-awareness to know what type they are and then to act accordingly. So if you're trying to come up with some creative innovation, you want maximum input from everybody. Right. You do. Yeah. But then when you're trying to go from all of that maximum input to what is the best solution, that's when you might amp up the, hey, let's let's have competing ideas talk to each other, people with competing ideas talk to each other, or let me amp up my, you know, my status so that we can get to more of an outcome together as a team. Um, because there's certain situations in which you will need that dominance, but when you're trying to brainstorm and get ideas out, that might not be the best strategy to be um, kind of competitive. But after you've got that strategy, that innovative strategy, you want to execute on it. Yes. Which means you want to go into that, what you're calling a high testosterone mode. Yes. Or, or where they create more structure and create more of op opportunities for people to select and test and rule out that ideas that are not optimal. So uh, before we leave groups, I was very intrigued by a finding you came up with uh, from boards of directors that showed that um, somehow if a board had two female members, then they felt that they had done their job in inclusion and diversity and they stopped. Yes, yeah, so we looked at um, Fortune 500 companies over time and, or actually what it might not have been Fortune 500 companies, it was actually, um, S&P 1500 boards, so standard and boards, 1500 um, companies, top 1500 companies. And we looked at the number of women on these boards. And essentially, we wanted to better understand if um, there was a, an overrepresentation of exactly two women on these boards. And here's why. We know that at one point there was tokenism and that when the kind of standard might have changed to having two women on boards, that that might have then gotten boards to be more thoughtful about diversity. And so essentially we ran a simulation where we were able to, to look at over time, is there an overrepresentation of exactly two women on boards, which is a phenomenon we call tokenism, 
given that organizations might, due to impression management concerns, move from just having one on the board because we don't want to be viewed as not diverse to two. And we did indeed find an overrepresentation of women, um, of exactly two women on these boards. Again, a phenomenon we call tokenism. And we found that it was more pronounced in visible companies and um, those who generally have greater scrutiny. So when you have your company that is scrutinized a lot, you might say, oh, wait, what do other companies have? What are their numbers looking like? And if you find that the social norm is two, then you're going to say, okay, let's get to two. But then we realized that there wasn't more change after that, which then suggests that companies stopped at the number of two saying, this is enough, this is sufficient, but we know that it's not. And it's going to be very, very interesting now in this age of um, where we are, there's greater attention to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and where boards are really thinking about um, maximizing in terms of racial and um, gender diversity, what the, these board compositions are going to look like going forward. And I know for sure that in 2021, we are going to see a spike in the number of women and people of color on boards, because especially for companies where there's heightened scrutiny on them, because it's going to maybe go from tokenism to threekanism or something like that with gender, and maybe from just one with um, African Americans to two or more. That would be my guess based on this research. So that's very interesting because when you say it's impression management, we're trying to look good. Uh, it's you're thinking about the optics. You know, how do we look to other people? But that's not the same as letting minority members of a board know, "Hey, we welcome you and you belong." Isn't that another step? That is a, another critical step, and and I think that part of what we're going to need to examine closely in organizations given this renewed attention on diversity, equity, and inclusion, is how do you amp up the sense of belonging and make someone who has come in as a numerical minority, a person of color, not feel like it was just because of a mandate, but instead because of the true value that they add and that their opinion makes a difference to how the company does its work, which is why they're seeking diversity, not just for um, the numbers game, not just because others are doing it. And I think that there's some companies that are doing this genuinely because they believe in that and others who aren't. And it'll be clear over time which where different companies fall out. Well, I, I think that uh, one thing that might make a difference there is this subtle discrimination you talk about, where the people on a board uh, who are minority members feel that they're actually listened to, that they're respected, that their opinions are taken into account in decisions. Yeah, and I, I just, I feel like to ensure that that happens then, you know, power needs to be given to these groups and to these individuals to be able to shape the direction of um, many of the decisions that are being made. I wonder if there isn't a new kind of leadership education that's called for. I'm thinking of research out of Berkeley, where it was found that in a, a dyad 
of the more powerful person or higher status person in that diet pays less attention to the other person than the person of lesser power or status who pays most attention upward. Uh, and this is uh, pretty unconscious, I think, I, I, but it, it definitely sends a message. Yeah. And I mean, you make me think about how I have felt this past year and some of the diversity, equity, inclusions uh, context I've been in. And yes, arguably in some of my roles, I am in a high power position, but my race and gender make me in most organizations in a lower, um, lower status situation, right? And all my life being a numerical minority, being a black woman in environments where very few look like me, it's normal for me to first think about what other people are thinking and feeling instead of, i.e. what the high power people are thinking or saying based on their race, being in predominantly white environments, then to pause and think about what I am thinking of for myself. And so I realized that even in a senior position now in my life, I still worry and think about what are they thinking? Is this going to offend them versus how am I feeling? And so a critical piece of this now recognizing that is asking people and creating an environment where you can say, hey, take off the layers. And what is your authentic self feeling? What are you thinking right now? Say it. I want to hear it. I want to hear your truth and honor your truth. And if I was asked that in the context I was in, I would tell people, hey, I'm worried more about what you're thinking than what I'm thinking. And that would give them insight into what a low power person might be feeling in these um, types of situations. And then maybe give them more of a chance to give low power people voice in conversations, knowing that. So that's your uh, giving an example where a person who is perceived as low power speaks up and opens up the conversation. I wonder what it would take to get high power, you know, white male privileged leaders to think this themselves. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, one of the things I often tell my students is put yourself in low and high power positions. A high power leader needs to find spaces where they are in a low power situation so that he can understand what exclusion feels like, what it, what it feels like to be one of few. And I don't think you can fully understand other people's perspectives if you've never sat in their shoes at, at some point. And so I think that's one of the biggest tests right now is can people put themselves in high and low power positions to perspective take? Because that's how you really understand another person. It takes empathy, doesn't it? Mm, a lot of empathy. A lot of empathy and being able to say, wow, we might be different, but I lived that experience in this instance. So, gosh, we're pretty similar in some ways. And it's, it's kind of, you know, this idea of empathy and compassion. A lot of, of it is compassion. That's right. You know, there are three kinds of empathy in the, according to Jean Dessetti at University of Chicago. One is cognitive. I understand how you think. Another is emotional. I know how you feel because I'm feeling it too. But the third is empathic concern, which is I care about you. I, you know, it's a parent's love for a child. It's the same mammalian caretaking circuitry in the brain. And you're, you're saying that 
leaders today, particularly in the diversity, equity, inclusion space, need to have this third kind of empathy. Yes, that I am concerned for how you are experiencing this environment because I would have never had a clue before. Exactly, exactly. I don't know if you've had on your TED podcast, a a wonderful TED speaker, her name was Melody Hobson. And she talked about, uh, you know, we need to talk about race in the business situation. Did you have her on your podcast? I have not featured her yet, but she is phenomenal, phenomenal um, aerial capital management and, you know, a a wonderful woman. I've heard her speak a couple of times and I'm always inspired um, by what she says. And yeah, the importance of really talking about this. So what she's saying is, you know, it's not a by the way. It's really important. It's a pivotal conversation to talk about race, for example, or gender, whatever the issue may be, because it what it does is create a common understanding in the team, in the room, wherever it is. But it seems to be, you know, that's one of the more touchy, difficult conversations to bring up. It is very true. And this reminds me of some of my favorite research by um, Evan Applebaum and Sam Summers uh, back in the day at Tufts, where, you know, they would have, they would pair people up and give them a grid of faces that varied in, in terms of race, gender, other characteristics. And as a person with this grid of faces, you're trying to get your other person that you're working with to identify the face that you have on your sheet or that you want them to guess or whatever. And they found that people would never say, oh, is he, and and so they need to ask questions, right? Is this person, you know, I don't know. Do do they have long hair? Do they have blonde hair? Are they short? Are they tall? I don't know, whatever. People would not say, are they black? Are they white? Like they would not say it. And that's the fastest way to get to and to narrow down the options, to actually say something about race. But people were afraid to just say the race of the person that was on their card that they're trying to get the other person to guess. Which makes you say the deeply entrenched, I don't know, um, baggage we have around discussing race means that we are not able to have the critical conversations that we need to have. And I'm so happy about this season that we're in where people understand the importance of discussing it. And right now it's about figuring out how, how to have productive conversations, period. Because, you know, by the way, race is just one type of, you know, transformational conversation you can have. But how do we have productive conversations where people leave feeling like they've learned and grown instead of feeling like they've been shamed or, you know, told they've done something wrong or feel like they're discriminatory and biased and terrible humans? No, that's not what we want. We want to be able to discuss these dynamics so that we can have more productive conversations and make more of a difference in our organizations. And do you do that when you go into organizations? So when I go into organizations, there's usually a challenge that they're facing. And my goal is to help bring our social science tools to bear in whatever the challenge they're facing. And this past year, 
the common themes are people of color not feeling like they belong, people of color not feeling like they have the same access to opportunities as other people in the organizations. Another common theme across race and gender is feedback. People not feeling that they get the feedback they need to progress and to see other opportunities. And people generally wanting to learn more about race and gender dynamics so that they can um, be more well-rounded, thoughtful humans in organizations. So those are the themes. So that last one sounds like caring, but I have a question about the third one. That is the course of your career. You've talked about gateways and pathways as critical junctures. Could you say more about that? Yeah, so my collaborators and I have done some research where we look at pathway processes in organizations. And what's that? Well, often in a lot of the research on um, diversity, we look at gateways and we think of gateways as a, an opportunity where a yes or no decision is made. Is there discrimination in who we interview? Is there discrimination in who we hire? Is there discrimination in who we promote? Like all of those are yes, no decisions. So we let you into the gate. But their pathway processes like mentorship, like feedback that allow you to get to a gateway. And um, in our work, we examine the pathway process of even just getting to apply to, to a PhD program. And we looked at the subtle discrimination that can occur on pathways, because again, these are overlooked processes. And this was a study of um, academics. We examined over 6,000 academics um, in a variety of different disciplines across the country. And we sent them um, fictitious emails from prospective doctoral students whose names signaled race and gender. And these email requests was for like a quick meeting to learn more about the PhD program. And we wanted to see whether professors responded to the emails and whether the um, response rates were higher to white males relative to um, all other categories. So we had black, uh, Latinx, um, Asian, Indian, uh, I might be missing a category, but I think that's it. And we did find that um, white males had a greater likelihood of being responded to than all other categories. That's in even just emailing back and saying, yes, I can meet with you. No, I can meet with you. And then also in agreeing to meet. And now we canceled all the meetings and all that, by the way. So, so no professor was there waiting. But this is just was showing that even professors, you know, we like to think that we're egalitarian in academia, that discrimination isn't as pronounced, but it is. And we saw that in the pathway process of applying to um, coveted roles to a PhD program. And what this suggests is that bias does exist in these processes. And so maybe one way to reduce bias is to make sure that there's a central repository for all emails and all emails are responded to equally. Um, you know, the, the answer is not to change your name so that it doesn't signal race or gender. Although if someone chooses to do that, I can't stop that. But my name is Majupa Akinola and my name signals race and gender. And I would hate to believe that I would be forced to change my name to get access to something. 
but people, you know, if you so choose, fine. But I do think that just even increasing our awareness as faculty, increasing our awareness as, you know, leaders and organizations that we do respond differentially uh, means that that will increase the likelihood that more people get access to these opportunities. So it, it seems to me that um, you don't want to have to have people change their names. What you want to do is change the culture, change the assumption, assumptive system, the biases that are operating uh, in, in business, in academia, in organizations generally. Uh, and that has to do, I think, with um, maybe some very mass education. Yes, yes. And, you know, one of my favorite books is by one of my collaborators on that work, Dolly Chug. And um, her book is called The Person You Mean to Be. And in this book, she talks about how we all want to be seen as good, 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 good. And so it's easy for us to ignore the areas where we could improve, the areas where we do have bias. But if we could strive for being goodish, that would mean that we notice, we're aware of when we are engaging in biased behavior. And then we can address it without that being this like big scarlet letter because I was biased in some way. We all smell the same smells and are in this ether here. And we are all prone to being biased in some way or another. What we all each need to do is recognize this and then um, be compassionate with ourselves about it so that in the future we can be better. Um, yeah, so we can be better. I wonder, I'm a big believer in educating kids to change attitudes. I wonder what kind of education in elementary school or junior high or high school might help inoculate people in the first place against this kind of bias. Oh my goodness. I'm so happy you mentioned that. I'm involved in a K through 12 school here in New York. And the head of the school told me the coolest thing. She said, I, I don't know if it's in the lower school or just in K or first grade. They don't have erasers on pencils because they want students to understand it's okay to make a mistake. You can cross something out. It's okay. It's not messy or a bad thing. Think about that. How you made a mistake and you spent so much time like erasing and re... No, it normalizes mistakes. It allows us to say, this is an okay thing. And imagine we all started very young with this understanding that mistakes are okay. That's what I think we need to start our kids off with. It's, it's okay. And, um, and I think that helps. I think that would help, but is there something more targeted to uh, minority bias? Oh, gosh, yes. I mean, I do. Th I think that I'm a big believer in cross-race contact, you know, going all the way back to uh, Alport and all that stuff. Like, I really do think that the more we expose our, our youth and have them interact with people who are different from them um, and learn about those differences and appreciate those differences and appreciate the similarities too, then they'll early on be able to embrace difference in the way we want you to as you get older. Um, so I think so much of this is about exposure, exposure. And we can't expect our kids to engage in different behaviors from us if we surround ourselves with the same people who look just like the us and also 
um, have them exposed to people who look just like them. No way. Reminds me of research that shows if you, as a kid, have a close friend from a given group, when you're an adult, you won't have a negative prejudice against that group. There you go. There you go. Intergroup contact. I mean, this, these are the fundamentals, the fundamentals. And so how do we get back to that? How do we get back to the basics? Let, let me ask you about, okay, so we have people at work and organizations and academia who have biases, whether implicit, unconscious or explicit. What about the distinction between educating someone about this or judging them? for that bias? Hmm. Oh, is it? That's a tricky one. Um, I will always err on the side of educating somebody and trusting and believing that knowledge is power and that if they knew better, they would do better. Now, let, don't get me wrong. There are some biased people in the world who will never change their thoughts, actions, or behaviors. And I'm not talking about those people. I'm talking about people who weren't educated to know better. And, um, you know, I had this experience. Um, it was my, one of my college reunions. It was a college reunion. And my college roommate shared with me 25 years later that it was so powerful for her to hear me say to her freshman year, when she asked me, why do you always dress up so much? You're so dressed up often. Like I go to the grocery store, I look like a bum, you know? And I said, and she, she reminded me that I told her, I don't have the luxury of going to a store and looking not dressed up or looking like bummy, like you say you do, because people will watch me, they will follow me and they will assume that I'm stealing. And the fact that 25 years later, she remembered that, that's a small piece of education that followed her, that made her more thoughtful about these things, that made her recognize that we experience life differently, that people will see a person of color differently. And that then shaped her behavior. So I could have judged her, but instead I shared with her what she needed, to, what I thought she needed to know. And so I do think we need to constantly educate people. Now, I do think that people need to educate themselves, though, too. Because I feel like as a person of color, the onus is often on you to educate everyone else because you've had the lived experience. But there are so many resources online. There are so many books now that I really think that people need to learn how to Google it, educate themselves. And if they're still struggling, then ask for others for help with what they're struggling with. But don't lean on me to do all the education. You need to do some work too, because that's exhausting and it's tiring. So we need to be socially sensitive. That's a beautiful note to end on. Thank you so much, Madhupi Akinola, for your wisdom and insights on diversity, equity, inclusion, and beyond. Well, thank you so much for having me today. interesting in Madube's interview, she talks about the difference between being good and being good-ish. And I think, you know, what she's really getting at there is this 
desire, I think that exists particularly for white people around the topic of race to um, be really woke and come in with, with all the right words and all the right language and um, to not fumble. And I think that's really impossible, right? Particularly again, if we're talking through in, living in America as white people where we have been um, in, not necessarily always in the majority, but certainly the ones with the majority of the power. Um, I'd say something that has been really valuable and important for me is actively putting myself in experiences and environments where I'm the minority, uh, which is something else Madupe talks about. I think particularly living in a mostly white suburban neighborhood, I find I have to really actively seek out diverse communities. You know, I've been in a lot of situations where I might be the minority, but the power that I hold because of my skin color um, is still really present. And um, so I just want to want to say that, like, I, I don't think I've ever had the experience of being uh, both in a minority and the feeling of disempowerment because of my skin color. That is so true and so poignant. What strikes me is that uh, she's talking about bias that may be unconscious. People may not realize that they have a differential response rate, that they have a preference. Uh, if they do, and they do it anyway, that's probably worse. But I think it's important that she signal this uh, and that people reflect on it. Uh, I think it's really vital research. Without that awareness, no one will change. As a business owner in a predominantly white area, um, but as somebody who recognizes the really important value of having a lot of different perspectives uh, in decision-making processes and uh, perspectives and understanding uh, in the organization as a whole, I've had to actively uh, search for a diverse pool of applicants. And so there's a real, a conscious effort that I've, I've needed to put into this aspect, uh, into that initial um, decision of uh, who is getting interviews. And yeah, I think this the conversation around pathways and gateways is really interesting. And when you talk about hiring, you know, when I was doing more um, corporate culture evaluation, we had a lot of organizations that would say, you know, we're not diverse because we don't live in a diverse area. And so we don't have a pool to draw from. And I think, you know, now as we move towards more remote work and we're moving into this world where people can work for a company that is thousands of miles away from them, um, that that's rapidly shifting. And yet this piece of pathways, is there good feedback, right? Are people getting feedback? Are people getting the training and development that they need in order to make it to the gateway um, is a huge fundamental question, right? And I think this is what we're seeing in areas like engineering, for example, that have, you know, for a long time were um, historically not diverse, right? And so there's been a lot of focus on how do we create STEM programs for minority youth and really start to create programs that 
give people the opportunity to build those pathways um, to occupy different professions and positions that haven't previously been occupied by diverse groups. What you're talking about is undoing the legacy of racism in all of its different uh, incarnations, systemic racism. I hear in what you're saying that it's not just hiring for the job. It's got to happen all of all the rest of the way until the job as as well. Everything before that, um, this needs to be a, a conscious effort to undo. I think gender is another piece in here. We've been talking about race, but. Uh, Madupe's research also touches on gender bias, uh, which is another one of those unintended, perhaps, but certainly relatively invisible forms of prejudice. So I, I think that uh, racism, of course, is the case in point, but we need to go beyond any kind of bias. We're grateful that you're listening to our podcast. To say thank you, we're offering 25% off our popular series of primers, the building blocks of emotional intelligence. Use the code FPP25 at checkout. The building blocks series explains each EI competency in practical, actionable terms. Order a set for you, a loved one, or a colleague at keystepmedia.com shop and use the discount code FPP25. That's keystepmedia.com slash shop. Discount code FPP25. Thank you. Thanks for listening to First Person Plural, EI and Beyond. Subscribe now and sign up for our newsletter to get notified as new episodes are released. This show is brought to you by our co-hosts, Daniel Goleman, Hanuman Goleman, and Elizabeth Solomon, and is sponsored by Keystep Media, your source for personal and professional development materials focused on mindfulness, leadership, and emotional intelligence. Special thanks to Riley, whose voice you heard at the top of the show, and to today's guest, Modupe Akinola. For guest bios, transcripts, and resources mentioned in today's episode, check out our episode notes on our website, firstpersonplural.com. This episode was written and produced by Elizabeth Solomon and me, Gabriela Acosta. Audio production by Michelle Zipkin. Episode art and production support by Bryant Johnson. Music in this episode includes... Static Shoes by Loyalty Freak Music and theme music by Amber Ojeda. Until next time, be well. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate our show and submit a review. It helps us spread the word about the show. If you want to go the extra mile to support our show, you can become a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can get exclusive access to extended interviews and behind-the-scenes content. Sign up at patreon.com slash firstpersonplural.